0: Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan.
1: My name's is Brent.
0: In this episode, we're discussing SST-117, the first album by the Human Rights Band, fronted by HR from Bad Brains. It's the self-titled album, and it's our first time having the Human Rights Band on the show. We had Bad Brains on way back at episode 65, and you should go back and check that out. That's the I and I episode where we give against the, I. What did I say? I and I. Oh, I think it's jam music is flowing through me. <laughs> Must it's, be. I, it's I against I. And go back and uh, check that out. Um, we do a big history lesson on bad brains, but now we're going to talk about that period right before I against I. Which is uh, very interesting to get into. And we've got a special guest brand.
1: Yeah, Kenny Dredd is gonna be on the podcast today.
0: Yeah. Awesome guy. Great interview. We mentioned this in the I and I against boy, I was gonna say I and I again. <laughs> the Eye Against I episode, SST sixty-five. We mentioned a ton of source material as well. And key to the HR story in terms of documenting, other than the music, are the two uh Like the book and the accompanying DVD that came out recently, Finding Joseph I, Mm -hmm. by Howie Abrams and James Lathos. But I got to tell you, like the interview with Kenny coming up adds a whole new layer to it. Uh, You cover a bunch of stuff that is not in the book and not in the DVD. And Kenny's a great dude. So we're really lucky to have him on. Totally. Yep. And I don't know if you noticed there, Brandt, but last week, I think it was last week. No, sorry. Two weeks ago, I did my box set theme spiel. Yep. And one of the box sets that's coming out that I'm pumped about is a new no-trend box set. Yeah, you mentioned that, yeah. And wait for it. There's a no-trend tie-in, which I loved. I loved. Yeah, I knew you would. I love that. Um, Hey, do you got any spiels before we get into this HR record?
1: I do, yeah. I wanted to mention some of the Record Store Day stuff that's coming out this year.
0: Oh, you're, you're, you're scooping my spiel, man. Am I? Yeah, you're a spiel scooper.
1: Okay, well, I'm just doing the SST stuff, so...
0: Well, I was just going to do that, too. That's the Ultra Scoop. Okay, well... That's fine, whatever. Go for it.
1: Okay, well, you might have some stuff to add on to this, so feel free to, to chime in. It's April 18th. There's a Meat Puppets self-titled 10-inch. It's got three new tracks, plus a cover of Big Rock Candy Mountain on it. There's a Bob Mould 2LP, the audio for the concert of the same name, Circle of Friends. Who plays on that, Ryan? Does he have Friends on it?
0: <laughs> I, You know what? It's not the one I don't think that you see online now and then that like Dave Grohl comes up and plays and stuff. Um, I can't recall. Okay. And I don't own that dvd but i'm gonna pick up the double lp when it comes out for sure i've listened to some of the audio but okay i gotta assume i gotta assume there's some friends on there
1: there there has to be okay sock tight has a 12 inch lp called smudge that's of course uh raymond pettibone and mike watt of course you're gonna have to score that because you collect pettibone cover art
0: dude don't don't say that because now everyone's gonna scoop me on it and I'm gonna have there's like 10 copies and none of them are in Canada
1: <laughs> okay the big one I'm interested in is the new worm seven inch Chuck Dukowski's worm it's poison and zero sum are the two tracks on this first new tracks in 40 years. so dig this Whoa. Ryan we got a scoop I reached out to Chuck and uh, I asked him some questions. Uh, So here's a little bit of a Chuck and Worm update. I asked if they were going to record some more stuff. He said, I'm hoping to record for sure. It's a big reason I put the group together. Uh, After putting out Exhumed and getting back together with Lou, it seemed natural for Worm Worm to be the vehicle for my compositions and live performance. Not sure what the next move will be. I have more historic recordings from the 70s and lots of songs I'd like to record. I'm fixing to move on getting all of it released.
0: Nice. Yeah. We can all use a little bit more Chuck and Loud Lou.
1: Yeah. So, of course, Loud Lou Hinzo is on drums. Uh, Chuck is on bass. And he also did the cover drawing, which is a bit of a throwback to the Worm single, We're Off, right. I'm Dead. Phil Van Dune, or Duane, I'm not sure how you say it. He's the guitar player, and I'm... He played in Swa and I think maybe some other SST projects too. And uh, the vocalist is German or German Gonzalez. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And I'm not sure who that is, but that's the vocalist. Uh, Recorded by David Jones at Eliminator Studios in Mar Vista, California in late December 2019. And I asked Chuck, is that the same David Jones that was in Magnolia Thunderpussy, and it is. He's also, oh. in, he's also in the Alice Bag Band, and they have a new album out coming out called Sister Dynamite that's going to be out on In The Red Records. Uh, Chuck said, yes, he's had a hand in everything the Chuck Dukowski sextet did after Reverse the polar- Polarity. He was behind the scenes in all of the CD6 recording activity. He was also on hand when I produced the second recording by the Shrine. We did it eight track, like the first Feast album, and that self-titled Shrine album that Chuck produced is—you can hear it. It was cassette only, but you can hear it on Spotify. It's really good. So there you go. There's your Chuck Dukowski and Worm update.
0: That's probably going to be the most swa. Record Store Day release this year. Definitely.
1: Okay, there's a few more here. Mike Watt and The Second Men have a 7-inch called In Quintessence, which I think is a cover of a song by The Squeeze. Dinosaur Jr. has a live LP live in Stockholm. Stockholm. It's called Swedish Fist. I love that name. Yes. And The Obsessed Ryan, Wino's Band from St. Vitus. There's a ultimate edition of this compilation called Incarnate that's come out a few times. This is a two LP uh, version. It's a rarities comp, and I have a challenge for you, Ryan. Actually, oh man, this is <laughs> re- related to the Obsessed. I was listening to them this week. They're, I think it's self-titled. It's been reissued on Relapse recently. Uh, they're a self-titled album and has a track on it called Forever Midnight. Are you writing this down? Sure, <laughs> it's a challenge. You better be.
0: I'm gonna be li- you. I have to listen to the obsessed song "Forever Midnight." Yes, Cause okay.
1: Because I, I think you'll like it. I was listening to that okay. record today, and I was like, "Ryan will like this." It sounds like Soundgarden. <laughs> it does, and we're on like a DC episode, so there's an, a tie in there because the obsessed was kind of involved in the DC hardcore scene.
0: Okay. Okay. Hey, I listen to everything that you recommend, even if it's an explicit recommend or you just mention it in passing.
1: That song in particular, Forever Midnight, when I was listening to the record, I was like, I I bet you Ryan would like this.
0: Okay, I appreciate you thinking of me.
1: Yeah. Okay, and then I just have a quick recommend for anybody who, um, because we're on a reggae, well, not really. We'll get to that when we get to the tracks, but... There's this new project, the band's called Resin Tooth, and they have a self-titled record on this label called Wax Thematique. Uh, It's this uh, guy, Nathan Spicer, who recorded and mixed it, and he plays keyboards, and it's it's kind of subtitled his secret dub side project with this band Polyrhythmics, a Seattle-based funk Afrobeat band, and it's really good, like dub reggae. New Dub Reggae. That's cool. Yeah. Resin Tooth. Check it out.
0: I like the name. Are you done on Record Store Day then?
1: Yep. Yeah. Did I miss
0: okay. some SST stuff? No, but I mean, I would have had a, a few recommends in there too, but that's fine. You scoop me. No biggie. Go ahead. What are your recommends? The replacements probably. <laughs> yeah, there's also a Wipers record, a Wire record. You know, there's a few out there that are coming out that you should check out.
1: The wipers one is just—is this real, isn't it?
0: I think it's coming with a bonus seven-inch man. Hmm. Better get better research that for me.
1: <laughs> okay, I'm done. What are your? What else do you have?
0: That's it. I was gonna go into the record store day stuff, but you totally scooped me. Oh, well you know. Oh wait, I had I have another sh- wait. I do have a spiel now. I was thinking of something. I was just thinking of something before the show. Let me throw this in here. We'll see. We'll see if it's spiel worthy for you. You ever notice how when people talk about bad brains, people say the bad brains or bad brains Mm -hmm. and when they but when they say the bad brains, it's like they have more street cred when they're talking about bad brains. Who has more street cred? Whoever says the bad brains instead of just bad brains. I don't know about that. You think it's even equal street cred? Well, what are they called? I always just call them bad brains, but every now and then when I want to have some street cred, I say the bad brains. Well, that would give you less
1: street cred. They're not called the bad brains. They're just called bad brains.
0: Okay. I think I think people call them the bad brains to get street cred. I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. I was thinking about that this week. As you would I was have less, up...
1: though. That's my point. Because
0: they're not called the bad brains. I agree, but I think people call them the bad brains to make it sound like they have street cred. I'm just saying. I don't understand what you're saying to me right now. Okay, maybe this is going to get cut. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Should
1: we talk about this HR record?
0: Yeah, let's get into the human rights. History lesson, part one. All right, so as I mentioned, we've already touched on HR and Bad Brains at episode 65 great record eye against eye go back and check it out and we cover the history there um we've spoken about hr before on that show um his his uh, original name i guess i guess that's the way to describe it is paul hudson started off at paul as paul hudson and remember hr stood for hunting rod but now it's going to be human rights mm-hmm. so the band moved to new york and uh around the January to August 83, HR became a member of the 12 tribes of Israel. Kenny Dredd mentions uh, a lot of this in the interview. So I'm just going to give like a quick overview though. He um, talks about in, in the, uh, the documentary, Finding Joseph I and the book as well kind of cover this. Um, he, uh, he at some point met up with Ross Michael as well, who was kind of saying Why are you calling your band Bad Brains? You should be good brains. You should be jaw brains, you know, and uh, H.R. was getting more spiritual. And he decided to to move away from punk and use more of the styles and techniques from reggae or jaw music, as uh, it's referred to, to reach more people, to kind of reach a broader audience, actually. And I mentioned Ross Michael, we'll get to him on his album Zion Train in SST 165, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah. yeah. Now, now Kenny mentioned the first incarnation of the human rights band. And uh, there's also mentioned, though, that I found that suggests there's an even earlier incarnation in New York still, where. Jose Gonzalez on bass from the New York hardcore band The Mob and Dr. No and a guy named David Hahn on drums with HR. And that, I mean, I read up on it and it seems to suggest that that's actually like the ultra, ultra first version of the human rights band. But Mm. HR, HR eventually moved back to DC though. He brought this project to DC, Human Rights. And the second incarnation was with David Byers on guitar, who's uh, on this record, Earl Hudson, his brother on drums. Uh, David Jordan was on second guitar and Jose Gonzalez had moved from New York to DC as well to, uh, to be on bass at that point. So this is before Kenny joined the band. This is around the era where HR is dressing in like military fatigues. He's, he's ready for a revolution, you know, at the same time, around this time, he started off the Zion Train project, which he discussed with uh, Kenny as well. That was really, he was kind of the co-lead singer with Al Walker or Judah Selassie, who we mentioned in the interview and who's also on this record. They put out one record on Olive Tree Records in 1986, and this is all in that 83 to 84 time timeframe. Um, now... Kenny mentions Olive Tree Records. There was an individual, her name was Julie Bird. She was a big supporter and friend of the band, kind of helped bankroll the releases and was an executive producer of Olive Tree Records, which put out the first human rights record. It's About Love in 1985, which is re-released by SST. We'll get to it at SST 179, which has some Kind of punk sounding tunes on it, bad brain sounding tunes, which you mentioned in the interview. Also, Olive Tree Records put out the Keep Out of Reach 12 inch in 86 by Human Rights. Those tracks appear with the It's About Love tracks on SST 171, which is called the HR tapes, 84 to 86. And again, all this happened before Eye Against Eye, before they kind of reformed for the Eye Against Eye record. Um, you talk with Kenny about the dread house. This is this, uh, three level house, which kind of be, became a center, center location for this, uh, Rastafarian, uh, cultural kind of event that was taking place after HR moved back. And, um, the, uh, the documentary talks about HR. He had like the, you know, the smallest room in the house. Um, he was living living very simply, um, also, in the book, it talks about like Skeeter Thompson from the band Scream used to frequent there as well. So it seems like it was a really a hub for a lot of musicians and people that were involved in the Human Rights and Zion Train projects. Now, Kenny Dredd lived there as well. Um, he was in that go-go band Outrage. We get into that in the interview. I also read, though, that HR guested on vocals at some Outrage shows as well, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. And then this album came out in 1987. Um, before we turn it over to Kenny, though, we should mention the other HR records that are we're going to get to eventually. I mentioned the HR tapes at SST 171. There's also the Now You Say No Return 12-inch at 173. It's About Love at 179. Singing in the Heart at 224 Charge, which um, Kenny talks about, which is SST-256. Rock of Enoch, SST-274, and then the Anthology Collection at SST-361. So we're going to get into the Human Rights Band a number of times on the show, which I'm looking forward to. Um, And people should also – we'll mention this as we kind of go deeper into the catalog – throughout the shows, but there are a number of non SST EPs and albums that human rights put out as well. And the Zion train band put out a a 12 inch on all of tree records as well, which is worth checking out. So that's kind of a very, very quick high level intro of like where HR was at. Good one, man. Yeah. He's trying to, trying to get the message out there to kind of move away from punk, use some of those, reggae um, ideas and pulling together this project in DC
1: I'm super like I listen to a lot of roots reggae and I'm super fascinated by Rastafarian you know their belief system and stuff super interesting so I always love hearing someone uh, you know using the, the Rastafarian expressions and sayings on records the reasoning man yeah
0: Reasoning, yeah. yeah. A lot of what comes through in this record, and you talk about it in, in the interview, is about, you know, uh, love, looking out for each other, um, struggling day to day, just trying to make ends meet. Um, and being there's, a living... little,
1: there's a little bit of the Peter Tosh side, too, with oppression. Yes. Uh, maybe not on this record, but some of the HR stuff is, you know, there's some police brutality, maybe type stuff
0: yeah it's definitely like thematic thematically similar a lot of those strains are very similar to what you hear on some roots roots rock reggae roots reggae stuff definitely more so than on the dub stuff right which is more instro, but yeah i don't know should we toss it over to kenny then yeah okay we're joined by kenny
1: dread on the podcast today kenny thanks for coming on the show
0: i'm glad to be here
1: Okay, so I'm phoning you about HR, and specifically the Human Rights album, but I'm wondering if you can take me back to the start of kind of your musical career in Washington, D.C., that's where you got your start.
2: Yeah, pretty much. Um, I went to college in, I'm from Chicago, I went to college at Lawrence University in Wisconsin, and when I was there, I, this was 1979, 80, and I started, I was, started a band there with um, a singer called Craig Rosen, we started this band Static Disruptors, right. and we, we were jamming you know, at college for two years. Craig was from D.C., and he had played briefly in a group called The Enzymes, which included Chris Haskett, who later on went to be in the Rollins Band, right. and David Byers, who later on became one of my closest musical associates in my own groups in D.C. and in H.R., uh, also, this bass player, John Gibson, was in the Enzymes, and he l- later on went to be primary part of the psychotics. So basically, you know, we're doing this band out, out of the Midwest in college, and we're just getting, you know, we just want to go for it. And Craig was basically connected, you know, somewhat tangentially to the scene going on in D.C., and he was like, let's go to D.C., let's go to D.C., you know, and we can get a gig, I know people, et cetera. So we basically, about five of us, dropped out of college all at the same time, and went out to D.C. (laughs) to do our band, Static Disruptors, in D.C. And um, the group, you know, we got in the scene pretty quick. We played at, you know, at all the usual spots back then, which was um, D.C. Space and and Nine Thirty Club, etc. And then pretty quickly, uh, Static Disruptors started getting really influenced by. The sounds around us in dc um we we were pretty eclectic our sounds when we came to dc but then uh, both uh the hardcore side the reggae side and the go-go funk side influenced static disruptors and you know certain personnel changes started to happen and we eventually had um david byers who was in the enzymes he was in psychotics he was in peer pressure you know which would you know these are all he was deep in the scene he also was uh you know knew hr really well right. uh, i mean david byers a uh, you know was uh, who has passed away was one of many african-american punk rockers on the scene in dc which made the scene there slightly different than in other places and of course bad brains being an african-american group um So basically, you know, suddenly, you know, it's like I get to D.C. with this band from the Midwest and it just started morphing into um, a group that was more attuned to the to the hardcore scene and more attuned to playing go go. and We kind of had this mashup go go funk style. And then next thing I know, um, I was introduced by David to H.R. and got to know H.R., and I, at the same time, I was starting to be influenced by the Rastafari tradition and spiritual tradition and other uh, musicians I met in D.C., primarily uh, this group of Jamaican musicians who were congregated in Adams Morgan. HR had also, you know, and Bad Brains were already well into Rasta phase at that point. And so there was an overlap of the people that I was associating with, you know, and them, you know, it's kind of melded together. And... I believe that, you know, my relationship with HR was sort of, you know, I was just suddenly completely mesmerized by Bad Brains reggae. You know, I loved I loved the hardcore, but I was really, really into Rastafari and reggae music. And I just was completely, totally blown away, you know, by uh, Bad Brains reggae style and HR as a teacher. So basically, you know, one thing led to another. Next thing I know, HR has broken up the bad brains for the first time in 83, and he came down to D.C., and he started the first of the various ver- versions of the HR band, or human rights, depending on what you want to call it. Going back to the Static Disruptors briefly, can you
1: explain go-go music me I I don't know a lot about it and I'm really curious about it the bands I I believe your band you ended up playing in a band called Outrage and I'm just I'm really curious about go-go music and why this music came out of DC predominantly
2: well um, go-go music it what's so interesting historically is that go-go the peak of go-go was exactly at the same time as the peak of DC hardcore was the first five years of the '80s. Now there were, you know, the connections between go-go and hardcore, you know, were made, and I was I was certainly a part of that. And later on, Ian Mackay was part of that, and you know, different promoters. You know, was uh, go-go was indigenous DC um, funk, and but it, it it wasn't exactly it was pre hip-hop, so the, the, you know hip-hop hadn't really taken over the world yet. And rap, as we know it, hadn't really taken over the world. And so this very local style of funk music came out of D.C., and it it, it is its own. It it was incredibly swinging style of music. I mean, it, you know, you can make a comparison to New Orleans-style music, which has an innate type of sense of swing, but D.C. had its own thing, its own swing. The typical D.C. go-go bands in the classic era were... Could be 13 people, three percussionists, drummer, horn section, rhythm section. Um, they, the the Go-Go, the go go the go gos which was the concerts were it'd be like 2,000 3,000 kids, right? Primarily, uh, like 99.9 percent African American. And um, the the interesting one of the interesting things about go go was this: the the, the musicians never stopped playing. So it's not it's not like play a song, stop kick off the next song, stop, kick off the next song. The go-go music was continuous. The song would sort of end, but the rhythm section, the percussionists and the drummers kept kept playing. And so what Static Disruptors and Outrage did was essentially bring the go-go to the hardcore scene and the alternative rock scene in D.C. So we would have been, you know, we opened for the Chili Peppers, we opened for Beastie Boys, and we were, you know, we were the funky band On the scene, pretty much, and we we did our best to create, you know, the connections between the the world of go go and the world of hardcore, and you know, we we made our little stab at it. (laughs) So our style was wasn't pure go go at all. We would we occasionally played, you know, real go go shows.
1: You're talking about outrage now.
2: Both outrage and static disruptors. Okay, gigged a small tiny bit on the real go go scene. You know the primarily african-american go-go scene and you know even though what we thought we were playing go-go the kids basically just stared at us because (laughs) it just wasn't exactly the same exact groove you know like it's like try to you know what i mean where you think you know how to speak a foreign language and people just stare at you funny you know and that was there there's even a song on the human rights album that's kind of influenced by that our style by the outrage static disruptors style and that's um uh, now you say right, yeah. You know because it was like there I am playing the funky bass, and you know it's it's not exactly go go, but it's it's getting in that direction.
1: That track specifically has, and, and a lot of the tracks have, you know, a strong theme of social justice type issues. Was that a was that common to the go go scene too?
2: Um, it was common to to the, my groups, Static Disruptors and Outrage. You know, we would have these, you know, slightly, you know, overt, you know, let's unite, you know, black and white, you know, let's unite type, you know, sentiments. Um, It certainly wasn't the go-go music, you know, true, like, or the, you know, uh, classic DC go-go music. I don't remember hardly any overtly political um, lyrics or anything like that. It was entertainment. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, the, 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 the early rap song, The Message, came out around that time, um, but that was New York. You know, so I didn't, I don't remember any of the go go groups, you know, putting out any type of song, you know, that, that was, or, or, or a consistent political theme to any of the, you know, classic DC go go groups like Chuck Brown, Trouble Funk, Rare Essence, Experience Unlimited. Those were the big groups right, right, during yeah. the classic era. So
1: outrage, did you? I I was really interested to hear the band because I found a bunch of gig posters and like you guys played a ton with a lot of like the DC hardcore bands and but I couldn't find any recordings.
2: Yeah, see, this is the really bizarre thing is that outrage. Um, there's the only recording is on a compilation called DC Rocks that was released as a cassette in America and as a album in the UK. Yeah. It never, has. it's never been digitized. I don't think any of it ever got onto YouTube. I mean, I should probably do that one of these days. But Outrage, we just, it was pure hubris. Like we, we just, we're just too busy gigging. I mean, believe it or not, we weren't that, it's like the ambition was built in to the activity. And there was so much going on. And for some reason, we just didn't, think a lot about making records. Right. So we never we would record and we would either lose interest or feel like oh we can do better, we'll do better and then half a year, a year would go by, we'd record again. We just we weren't focusing. We were too busy gigging basically. <laughs> and it wasn't as easy to record as it is now. Not at all, it cost money. Yeah. You know, and so we did do it. We did go in and we just never got it together to release stuff.
1: So there are recordings.
2: There are some. Yeah. Uh, and again, I mean, the two, you know, I'd say that th- the, 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 it was myself, Doc Knight, and David Byers would have been sort of the primary writers, and it was a real group. It wasn't like one, any one buddy's group. Um, and David and Doc have both passed away. Right, yeah. So, um, which is just, um, you know, a mind fuck for me. But there are some recordings out there, and I have had discussions with Julie Bird, who was our primary um, executive producer of Olive Tree Records, and I've had discussions with Doc's son, uh, Bobby Moses, about doing something. So there's there's something out there. There's, there's stuff on cassette. I'm sure that there's something that could possibly be mastered, but it's really awkward now. I mean, like, you know, everybody's dead. It's just it's yeah. fucked up. What about uh, mission of or sorry, mission for Christ? Okay, Mission for Christ was a offshooty, quickie project that was put together by John Gibson, who I mentioned earlier. He, he played in the enzymes with, with Haskett and Byers and all them. And then he was his primary group was the psychotics, which David Byers was also in. And he just wanted to do a band that was inspired by the noisy style not so much Sonic Youth, but a group called No Trend. Right. Yeah. In fact, our single was released on No Trend Records. And No Trend was like anti hardcore. <laughs> you know, they were like you know, they they played slow and distort and, 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 and dissonant and noisy and their whole thing was like it's not we're not a trend, you know? Right. Um so we it was just literally at that stage I was primarily a bass guitarist and this whole noisy thing it was just it was just like a quickie little project
1: i definitely hear the <laughs> p- hear the public image limited influence also
2: oh yeah oh yeah definitely as
1: yeah. a as a bass player yourself sh- yourself i'm sure you were
2: you yeah know, you were i mean pill. you know though you know there was epic gig in dc minor threat opening up for pill wow which was you know obviously historical and it was their uh, flowers of romance tour And it was pretty fucking intense. (laughs) No kidding. Okay, so you meet HR.
1: You're kind of enthralled with, you said more like the reggae side maybe of Bad Brains was what really grabbed you?
2: Yeah, it was. It was his singing. Yeah. And it was the fact that, you know, he was really, truly living the Rastafari way. And I was, you know, right around the time I met him, um, influenced by other um, musicians who were, of uh, you know Rastafari right and so it kind of was a, a a coming together for me meeting him and being like oh my god you know blown away by his singing by their reggae and then of course blown away by you know Bad Brains in general
1: how does the band come together i know at a at a certain point you kind of all start living together the interesting thing for me is i guess the conventional narrative is that hr left the bad brains to focus on reggae because of his spirituality. But the interesting thing is all the recordings that precede this Human Rights album, like the It's About Love stuff and the Keep Out of Reach and this album, there's hardly any reggae on it.
2: I know. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's like there's a lot of, whenever you're talking about HR, there's a lot of mysteries, right? Right. And so, you know, it was, um, I think... Look, I was there. He came down from D.C. when he from New York when he first broke up the Bad Brains, and he literally we lived together for a winter. And he didn't. He was essentially recovering from the most intense four or five years of anybody's life. You know, I mean, he literally was just chilling out. And then Earl, his brother, the drummer of the Bad Brains, came down from New York, and then suddenly it was like, get get going get it together, get a a band, get musicians. And they jumped into the first version of the HR band, which is the one on It's About Love. And yeah, and they were doing hardcore and rock and a little bit of reggae and a little bit of like kind of poppy, funky stuff. And yeah, and then that sort of continued, you know, so the HR band in those days wasn't playing a lot of reggae. Now, actually, eventually it did. Right. by by you know the, the the album after human rights which is called um charge that's like all reggae right and and that was the that was um you know that was a lot of the music that we've been developing i didn't play on the album but uh you know i played all that music on tour and stuff so it was he did he did it's just that the recordings didn't necessarily reflect that
1: yeah i was going to ask like i know you started gigging fairly quickly once the band started coming together and I was just curious like was it the material that you recorded on you know on these albums or was it more it, did you more focus on it, the reggae stuff
2: it it was like an arc in the beginning it would have been the stuff that you hear on the albums I mean you know contemporaneous to the the sets would have been you know contemporaneous to the albums now remember there was a, a shuffle of musicians like I played in the in hR three different times right as a guitarist a bass player a bass player and then a guitarist or four different times you know and so you had different people shuffling in out of the bands and also not necessarily people that played on the records didn't necessarily play in the band like i played on the um on the keep out of reach ep and at that point i wasn't in the band i was just helping make the record neither was david Okay, let's talk
1: about maybe some of the personnel that did record on this human rights record. How about this? I'll throw out a name to you, and you tell me what their involvement was, because it's almost it's kind of hard to tell, so I might not even have this right. Uh, Earl we talked about, obviously, uh, yes. HR's brother. Yes. Now, his drumming, was he playing like a Simmons drums on this recording? Do you know? Some of it sounds like it is, some of it sounds like...
2: Okay, here's what happened. Basically, we did, you know, we had our little label, Olive Tree Records, and we released It's About Love and Keep Out of Reach. Then we got a call from a woman in New York who worked at a label, an indie label up there called Celluloid Records. Celluloid had re- released a wide range of music, including stuff by Bill Laswell, Material, uh, some, Af- some world music like Felakuti, Kuti, stuff like that. And this, there was a woman who worked at Celluloid who literally rang us up and was like, we, we, we would love to do an HR album, you know, and, but at the time that was right after Eye Against Eye. And so we picked up the phone and called SST and said, we, we just got a call from Celluloid about doing an HR solo album. And Chuck and Greg were like, wait, 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 we want to do that. We want to do that. And in fact, we want to also buy the first two records too. Oh, wow. So that's. That's how, on the business side of it, it all went down. So then, in terms of the production, HR had connected with members of what was then called the Black Rock Coalition in New York, around, that was in, and, and, and uh, people associated with that, that um, scene, including the journalist Greg Tate. He wrote for the Village Voice for a long time. African-American journalist, brilliant fucking writer. He was a, you know so the Black Rock Coalition included people a lot of people who would go on to be in Living Color. Oh okay. And, you know and it was this it was this you know just as the name says. Right. Greg Greg Tate hooked up H R with Oscar Brown Jr., who was a part of that world, oh, in New okay. York, and that's why the album sounds the way it does because Oscar Brown Jr. basically produced the album and put all that gated reverb and all that 80s sounding, slick type of stuff on it (laughs) (laughs) including like the simmons sounding drum sounds and you know all that is the it was uh, oscar's influence that was his aesthetic and that was where where he was coming from and he also played keyboards on the album right yeah uh and
1: you're you're listed not only as the bass player but the communications coordinator what was your role there well
2: that we were olive tree records and we had released those first two records and so and then, I, you know, as I was just saying, you know, we got the call from Celluloid, and then we called SST. So I was essentially just, um, I, you know, I set up the deal. You're the kind of the de facto manager, maybe? No, no, more like a fixer.
1: Okay. <laughs>
2: because once once the deal was set, I didn't, I didn't like, I didn't, I didn't deal with the money. HR d- dealt directly with SST. I see. Okay. I he he was I helped I helped set it up, but I didn't manage the project or anything like that. I basically. He put that in there because of our role in you know, getting, getting it, getting the deal. Right. But then, but not managing the production of the album. Okay. Once, once the deal was struck, it was just HR and SST dealing directly. Did you play guitar on the album? Nope. No. I played bass, and David played guitar. David can shred. <laughs> oh my God! Jesus Christ! Yeah. I mean, you know, David and I were a unit you know, we were the core of Outrage. He was also in the last version of Static Disruptors. We, he played in, in one of my little offshoot bands called Revelation. Mm-hmm. He, um and you know, we we were, we both played, we were a double guitar team in HR, then bass and guitar in HR, and then, I mean like literally, we just were a total team, just put us in anything and we rocked it out, you know. and. And HR and, and excuse me, David could play you know anything. Right? Yeah. I mean, at times it sounds he
1: sounds like Doctor No.
2: Well, you know, this is everybody. You know, this is the primary influence. You know, and the, but as lead guitarist, he was even jazzier than Doctor No. For sure. Yeah. You know, he is more dissonance. Yeah. You know what I mean? He you know he was influenced by the harmonic movement. You know, um of James Blood Omer and Ornette Coleman and and that whole thing,
1: okay. Oscar Brown Jr., you mentioned he co-produced it with Ross Gabriel Josephi. That's H.R. That's J.H.R. Okay, Harvey Braxton. Uh, what is he credited as? He does vocals on "Conquering Judah."
2: That would, I, as I now, okay, as I remember, and I may be wrong. It was just a, a friend, okay, of H.R.'s who came in the studio. I don't even, I don't necessarily remember being in the session when that vocal was overdubbed. Who's Al Walker? Al Walker is also known as Judah Selassie. And he was a very, very close associate of HR around that era. Particularly, you know, the, the whole idea when HR first broke up the Bad Brains was to start a group called Zion Train with Al Walker who you know, we always knew him, I always knew him, as Judah Selassie. Okay. He is not a Jamaican, but a deep, deep uh, Rastafarian, African-American Rastafarian from D- the D.C. area, and a good singer, and so one of the Olive Tree releases uh, well, was, called, was by Zion Train and featured his singing. Oh,
1: okay. So Zion Train and the HR band are they're different projects.
2: Different projects, but a lot of overlapping people. Okay. The uh, the concept pretty much was Zion Train was you know a, a vehicle for both HR and Judah, I see. Or Al Walker, right?
1: And how does Ross Michael play into it?
2: Well, you know Ross Michael is a legend. Right. I mean, legend, legend, and and a, one of the early founders of Rastafari and Reggae and Nyabingi. and. So what was happening was somewhere around that era, Ross Michael moved to America from Jamaica. Okay. And I remember playing, I played I played with him a few times in DC and in Los Angeles. And I remember playing a gig in DC and he had literally just got off the boat or got off the plane from Jamaica. And I don't think he ever went back. He has been living, as far as I know, he's been living in LA for a long time. And then at a certain point, you know, this just through the network of this music, HR and Russ Michael, you know, did this album together for SST.
1: One of the interesting things about this record is you mentioned hip hop and the message. There are, yeah. there are some definite hip hop influences on this album that like HR raps it a few times. There's some sampling. Right. Was that, right? you know, a discussion you had? Like, let's go in this direction and incorporate this music, or did it just kind of happen that way?
2: Um, it was just what was in the air, you know, and I mean, to me, um, the sampling was like my fault, (laughs) (laughs) just because like, you know, we're just, you know, reacting to what was around us. And the, I think the fact that, um, Oscar Brown Jr. produced it with this focus on really modern sounds and, you know, that, you know, it was like, this was already 87. So. You know, the, the, the you know, the, 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 the kind of really ritzy, you know, we, it was an attempt to try something new. Right. You know, so I, I don't even think it was just kind of like people were bringing, you know, bringing in ideas. Some weren't were used, some weren't used, you know. Um, it was just sort of, you know, what was in the air at the time.
1: How were the tracks put together? Were you jamming all together in the, in the Dread House or where, where were you practicing and how were the songs written?
2: Um, okay. The see, the, a lot of those songs had been written about a year earlier, when we did we did some touring, and HR brought that group of songs, including "Road to No Return" and "Life After Death." Primarily, mm-hmm. it's like he came. Basically, he came to me and D- David and myself, and he said, he basically said, "I want you guys to be in the ba- be the band again, because we weren't the band. He had he had a different lineup." In between an earlier time when both David and I played in HR suddenly it was like I remember we met we just ran into HR on the street in Adams Morgan and he said, like okay i, I got I got gigs and and I want to do an album and I got all these new songs you know and and basically suddenly we're we're the band again, and it's this new um repertoire and these were power i mean Lyrically, amazing song. I mean, wrote an turn and life after death are so powerfully, honest and and intense songs. You know, and so a a little bit of the human rights album was done just like jamming in the studio. Right. Like, I think that because there's these vignettes, like these very very these very short songs. A lot of them, I think, it was just kind of like, okay, he was just like, okay, play play some rock or play some reggae and and i think that's how those very very short vignette ones came about but the primary composed songs on the album had been sort of in the air for about a year i think as i
1: remember and how's he writing these songs like is he showing you these is he playing a guitar and or is he, um, does, is he just writing lyrics
2: mm, that's a really good question i got a funny feeling that he would be indicating riffs and indicating you know the movement uh, he wrote the music he, he did write the music he you know he HR played guitar and so I remember he would he would play like kind of roughly you know the the licks or the chord changes yeah. as I remember okay. it's quite possible that David um, maybe embellished something or added a chord here or there don't I may be wrong about that okay but as I remember now he this is a really searching my memory bank. I don't remember like him just singing and us making up the music. I think he had the music and he was good. You know, he he could play enough guitar to say, okay, this, you know, na you know what I mean? Right, yeah. The lick to life after death or something like that. And uh, so, yeah. Okay. I mean, he's credit he's credited as the songwriter, and and I believe that that's that's accurate.
1: Okay, tell me about the touring. You mentioned some touring prior to the recording of this album, and I think again afterwards, did you do some touring?
2: Yeah, I mean, there was a slew of gigs le- sort of leading up to the recording, and there was a, a a slew of gigs after. It wasn't like a proper tour. Right. The proper tour happened a year later, in 1988, and, and Oscar Brown Jr. had nothing to do with that. And on that tour, we didn't play a whole lot of the album. We played, a, basically, that tour was like, we the the repertoire for that tour was the album called Charge, and or and also the album called um, I Love, which was this independent independently released album that happened shortly thereafter. So there, there was no there was no big big tour for the Human Rights Record. The big tour came later, booked by SST or their their book, SST's booking agency, but we didn't like play the album. Okay, we played like almost all reggae.
1: How was that tour? Like, what kind of bands would you have been playing with? Did you play with other reggae bands, or was it mostly, you know,
2: we, punk we played, bands we played, with the
1: Bad Brains connection?
2: Uh, we would, that tour was beautiful. It was 1988, summer, spring, and summer. It was beautiful. We played, we would almost always, I think, we always headlined. And usually, um, the opening groups would have been, they'd be a mix of, of, you know they were all alternative it wasn't like a Jamaican reggae band right but you know it would be like either kind of bad brains friendly groups that kind of had maybe a little bit of a reggae influence or some punk groups or whatever or all you know alternative groups whatever you know, at that point remember the whole war around bad brains playing reggae was long over now it's 1988 it's not not 82 or 83 when the kids would walk out the room when the bad brains played the dub okay. so you know things had changed and um that tour was just beautiful and we played in la a lot at the end of the tour and played i think with i can't remember the groups but it was just good times and well and well received and hr was an incredible voice you know and it was like that was just a great a great great time do you recall recording the album
1: at q studios in virginia falls church virginia
2: yeah Q Studios was where we worked uh, and where we created all the Olive Tree Records releases. So that was like our home base studio. The recording, you know, it, it was a little, it was a little funky. Like we didn't necessarily all play at the same time, partly because of the way that Oscar Brown Jr. wanted to produce it with click tracks and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Also, there was some, there was some schedule stuff. I distinctly remember David not being able to be there on some of the sessions and having to overdub his guitar, which is odd when you think of like basic rhythm sections, guitar, bass, and drums. You know what I mean? So there was some strangeness around, um, as I remember, around the recording process.
1: Talk to me about living in the Dread House. What was that like? Who all was living there, and and, and what was the atmosphere?
2: uh, Well, the Dread House was basically a situation where You know, I personally was just uh, uh, completely—I was a student of HR's, you know, and I didn't even call him HR, I called him Joseph. I was a student of his in the Rastafari faith, and I was also a student of his as, you know, it was a growing musical experience to be playing with someone who already was a legend, a living legend. You know, obviously even—he was already a legend— several years of legend. So essentially, this was a personal, spiritual, musical, professional partnership. And we just all lived together for a long winter. And at a certain point, you know, HR wanted to expand the community. And a lot, a lot of people started coming and living in the house. It, it, you know, and it just it was a beautiful atmosphere. Yeah. It was a beautiful, it was a a pure, what you would call a satsang, you know, in the yoga terminology. We we were like a spiritual community for a short time, and it was beautiful. The vibe was really beautiful. Um, Eventually, it didn't work out because, you know, the house was only so big, and a lot of people started living there, and, you know, things got a little funny. But um, it was a great way to bond and, you know, set up. Our connection for the next several years of making music together and for me you know just like living with a teacher you know he was i considered him my uh, my spiritual teacher and so it was a total download okay and it it was beautiful what did you do next kenny
1: after after kind of going your separate ways with hr did you play on the singing in the heart album
2: there's one song, uh, two, one or two songs on am singing in the heart that are outtakes from the Human Rights album. Oh, OK. And, and I, so I played on a couple of tracks. But they's, they came from the, the Human Rights sessions. So essentially, my connection and collaboration with HR uh, ended after touring Europe. We, did, I, I sp- we spoke about that 1988 tour that SST booked. They also coordinated an early 1989 tour which uh, suddenly I was playing guitar again because nobody else had a passport. So it was like, you know, as I told you, like I was in the band four times, guitar, bass, two different times, and then guitar at the very end, touring Europe. And that was the end of my association with HR. We played the last gig in Edinburgh, Scotland, and pretty much, you know, said goodbye. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, you know, seeing him, uh, you know, often through the years. And and it's and looking back now, you know things change, people change, and it's just so amazing to know that I had I worked with him in his prime.
1: No kidding, you know, yeah.
2: there's you know, you know obviously there's not you're never going to be the bad brains, but to have worked with him in the era when he was an incredible voice, and an incredible performer, an incredible spiritual leader, all of that you know was happening. And uh, it was an amazing experience.
1: What did you go on to do yourself musically? Take us up to... Sp- I'm calling you in Ireland, so how, how did you... Yeah,
2: well, at, directly after touring with HR in 1989, I went to France and I uh, did a rock band called The Immigrants that's on Spotify, and I kind of summarized the 80s, my 80s. It has some funk on it, it has some reggae on it, it has some some rock on it, some upbeat rock. I wrote a song called Power Time that's just talking about the Dread House. Okay. Uh, you know, the lyrics are about living with HR and living in the Dread House and, and the spiritual you know um, journey of the music and the performing and all that stuff. Um, and after that was, took me into, I'd say the early nineties and then I pretty much retired for a little while. Okay. And, and 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 suddenly You know, there's this group Nirvana, and I open up the CD, and I'm staring at the cover art, and I'm going like, I know that guy. I mean, it was Dave Grohl, who I knew from the scene in D.C. And so, you know, the rise of Nirvana and Jane's addiction everything, it just, it changed everything. It changed, you know, it it changed almost, I'm not going to say it changed my past, but it was absolutely like the end of an era of mine, you know, of living in this very underground very alternative um musical world and now you know it was big business right so i I considered that i was done with music um and but as way things go uh you know you never it's like a thing that you just never can quit sometimes and so over the years i've personally started spending a lot of time in ireland and a lot of time playing what's called kirtan music which is the music that's coming out of the yoga centers so, uh, you know, the performing and recording uh, personally just, just kind of sn- snuck back over the years. And a uh, real focus for me has been uh, singer-songwriter. Okay. Singer-songwriter and Kirtan. And, uh, you know, we, we had a reunion of Static Disruptors. We played several years ago in D.C. at a gig with Scream and Trouble Funk. And it was amazing to play for the first together for the first time in 30 years. No
1: kidding.
2: In DC at the 9:30 Club, you know, it was like wow, it was a blast. But yeah, no, I I am still I'm right now I'm a practicing musician. I'm not going to say it's my career, but I moved to Ireland to to be able to live a musical life without necessarily, um, you know, because in America it seemed like everybody is either in a band or going to gigs. And there's no in between where uh, I live in the West of Ireland, where traditionally there's a lot of social music making. And that, that creates a, it's just a different, a little bit of a different atmosphere to, to uh, practice music. Kenny, thanks
1: so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
2: Okay, bro. Thank you very much as well.
0: All right. Thanks Kenny for being on the show and Brent wicked. Mission for Christ reference nice one. <laughs> I'm I'm assuming you're a fan. Well I'm I'm a fan of no trend. I've got the mission for Christ single and it mentions Kenny Dredd, like right on it. We'll have to post a picture of it the Pennies from Hell single it's Kenton M- Muschenheim I think that's Kenny Dredd. on what on the, on this single
1: I'm not sure if he's if that's what he goes on at goes as on on the single. But there no, is he's,
0: he's mentioned specifically as Kenny Dredd, guitar and percussion on this, okay. MFC, yeah.
1: Well, there's a CD of this single, Pennies from uh, Hell, and there's a bunch of demos on it too. It's on this label called Ectro. It's this Finnish label that's predominantly for that band Circle. Okay. Uh, they also, by the way, released the Jesters of Destiny awesome LP with Bruce Duff on it. They release some cool stuff on that label, but anyways, there's the Mission of Christ complete sessions on that label, huh. and it's got uh, some cool liner notes and stuff. That track "Pennies from Hell" was written by David Byers. It's a Psychotics song.
0: Yeah, it's it's not like an amazing single, like wow, what a great track. But if you like Pill, you you can appreciate it. The No Trend stuff is better for my money, but the pennies pennies for hell single is. Uh, it's cool, and Kenny's mentioned right on it.
1: I was looking at the No Trend records discogs, and that's the only band that's not that was that they released that's not No Trend. No
0: Trend, yeah.
1: <laughs> One thing I was doing, Ryan, was really tooling around the internet looking for stuff on some of these uh, olive tree kind of associated bands like Static Disruptors, Outrage, Psychotics, Revelation. Man, like. It's such a shame, you know, a lot of these reissue labels, the stuff they reissue, and they always present it as, like, this amazing lost album or whatever, and it's just shit. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's a shame that there's no compilation with some of this stuff.
0: Yeah. No, it would be cool for sure. Or even
1: that, like, DC Rocks compilation that has some of these bands on it is unavailable like i would love to hear some of this stuff and get get a good album with a bunch of artwork and gig posters and liner notes and all that stuff yeah me too how
0: about that for a record store day release come on yeah
1: you you have to think there's a market for it one of the cool things i was thinking about is reggae in general in the dc scene like i think they were really into the ruts oh yeah dc
0: oh yeah you know. Henry was into the ruts, hey? Big yeah. time. Yeah. He's still, you know, I bought that book, Stay Fanatic. Mm-hmm. Um, every chapter in it mentions the ruts 37 times. <laughs> it's a good album. Well, it's not, I mean, all of their releases, Henry's all over them. Yeah. You know what's cool
1: about this record for me? And like the time frame we're in right now, I was thinking about this. It just really shows the diversity of the SST roster, musically. Like,
0: last oh, yeah. week we had like a country rock record, basically. Which people seem to be digging, hey? I didn't know that there were going to be so many Blood in the Saddle fans out there. That's cool. Yeah, well, it's a great record. Uh, this week we're
1: doing whatever you want to call this record. I, I don't consider it a reggae album, but uh, next week we're doing like avant-garde synth music. Uh, the week after that we're doing doom metal <laughs> like it's
0: and then, and then 4 weeks of zoog's rift baby <laughs> oh yeah yeah this is not a reggae album but you can tell that there's a reggae influence on it for sure cuz it's hr and there's some there's some dub reggae sounding elements but mm-hmm. you're quite right when you were speaking with Kenny in the interview like for all the talk about how HR and I mean, it's, it's all you read about is how he wanted to move away from punk, but this is still like a rock record, you know?
1: Yeah. And, by and, and, large. and it's a weird one. I saw on a blog somewhere where someone compared it to this Alan Holdsworth album called metal fatigue. Do you know that record? No, it's actually somewhat accurate. Like the Alan Holdsworth kind of shreds like Kenny, uh, like, uh, David David Byers a little bit, and the production is very similar. That's probably what's, you know, the the closest thing. Here's a cool review I found on all music by this guy, John Dugan. Rather than go go for a standard roots dance hall style, the accent is on harder Parliament style proto-go-go with touches of soul and jazz. Lyrically, (laughs) there are no surprises. Plenty of peace and love vibes and jaw worship. Yeah, I'm not
0: sure I would call this proto-Go-Go. Go-Go was around, like, was established by this point. Yeah, I, don't, I guess I didn't
1: it, really think of what that word proto means, but uh, there's definitely Go-Go elements to it, too.
0: Oh, yeah, there's one song. We'll get into the tracks for sure. All, all the songs on the record are credited as composed and inspired within and hereafter of and by I and I Universal Ja, I like that. And then there's um it also mentions Greg Ginn as executive producer. Mm-hmm. And then it says the record is written and arranged by Ja, endowing the gift through his servant Ross Gabriel Joseph I, which is HR, unless otherwise indicated. And then it says songs composed and arranged by Earl, Kenny dread, David Byers, and uh, Oscar Brown Jr. And you go through it on, on the uh, the interview as to who's playing on it. Um, Earl Hudson though was mentioned as Ross Earl Rasher Hudson as well in the liner notes. Okay. And then there's there's Kenny David Oscar Brown Jr., Ross Gabriel Joseph I, which is uh, H.R. on words and sounds, and then Harvey Braxton on percussion. Which it was funny for Kenny to. Is like what? Oh, I think that was I think that was just some guy. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Recorded at Q Studios, Falls Church, Virginia, right between February seventh and March thirty first, nineteen eighty seven. So I wonder if that reflects, like maybe putting down um, the tracks off and on, and then maybe the later part of that recording is when Oscar Brown came in and added all the synthesizers and stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe why it took like almost two months
1: Well, Kenny said it was kind of put together piecemeal. Right.
0: Yeah. It says, uh, mixed by Oscar Brown jr. And then remixed by David Byers in the credits though. Hmm. That's weird. And it mentions there's a big thank you list in the liner notes. It also says, this is a, a weird eye against eye tie. in it says like, there's an apology to Steve Hanner. The photographer of the i, in, I in against Eye insert photo hmm. toss that in here so maybe I, they I mean,
1: miscredited
0: him or something i don't know it's weird right um it's hard to figure out the chronology because like the human rights band kind of it kicked off before they reformed for i against i but i against i must have been you know well, obviously chronology on the on the label release numbers it came out before but it's hard to tell we got we did that one like a year ago man yeah seems Um, like anyways there's also a thank you to julie bird who we mentioned from olive tree and then there's also a thank you to vernon reed man
1: yeah well he gets mentioned in the interview or like living
0: color does yeah yeah
1: you want to talk about shredders man
0: oh yeah hey you know what um speaking of record store day a great thing about record store day is when there are all those insanely priced record store day releases that no one cares about and then they gather dust underneath a shelf and they uh but the record like, store never marks them down no no <laughs> but no 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 but they, but then they do but then they do because check this out the other day um i i like living color actually i mean so that might, i might yeah it might surprise you because i'm not huge into metal and stuff but i yeah, they're not really a metal band uh i know they're i know. like a funky rock band okay okay gosh man you always one up in me <laughs> <laughs> but but i mean like vivid and time's up were pretty key records for me as a as a young guy me too um, but i picked up a record store day release the picture disc of their 2017 album shade for Ten bucks like nice. out of a, out of a bin. Yeah, man. And it's good. Right on. I don't know if you've heard that record. I don't but think I have, no. Yeah, no, it's uh it's good and man Vernon Vernon can shred and man, that band is just killer every record. But yeah, Vernon Reed. I mean, when I was listening to this record this week, I was like, Oh yeah, you can totally tell that um Bad Brains and the human rights band were influential to Living Color. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Let's talk about this record, man. Okay. History
1: Lesson Part 2.
0: All right. So we've got 12 tracks, strictly speaking. Some of them are more songs than others. Some of them are weird, like weird kind of little snippets, like this first track, My Mama, which is about 43 seconds long. And it's just a short little, short little weird vignette that has these kind of cheesy synths in them and those cheesy sounding synths come up throughout the record
1: yeah i think like in the interview kenny says that he thinks a lot of these were just you know brainstormed in the studio really quickly uh and i should say if you're if you have this on vinyl uh this is the alpha side yeah i only have it
0: on cd what do you have it on
1: nothing (laughs) okay (laughs) There's a, there's a lyric in here that goes, a room that stinks like puke and looks like hell. Ouch. At least that's what I hear.
0: I could look it up, but the writing's too small. Yeah. Uh, so this one comes and goes pretty quick. It It's kind of, it's odd. It's um. I'm, I'm kind of glad it comes and goes quickly, really. Yeah, it's distracting. And then the first real track starts off called Human Rights, which starts with some kind of congas. Some atmospheric sounds. I hear a guero in there, maybe. maybe. Maybe, maybe. Then it stops and restarts <laughs> into kind of a funky number. Like those...
1: it stops super abruptly. Yeah. <laughs> it's and weird. It, it's it, weird, man. It's weird. It's and a it weird can... intro. It's like two minutes of
0: like new age music or something. Yeah, and then it goes, like, vroom, and it's done. <laughs> and then it cuts into like a funky number with some cheesy synths again. Um, and then there's some sampling at the end during a shredding guitar solo. Yeah.
1: HR is really preaching jaw word on this one. There's some cool dub effects on the vocals. Uh, it's a seven minute track. Yeah. But once it gets going into the song, it's pretty good if you can get past the, the synthesizers.
0: Yeah. You know, the synths were, they're, they've always been a struggle for me on this record. I find that stuff like really hard to get over. But after repeated listens, it almost can it because it's it's mixed so prominently yeah after repeated listens you can you can actually more easily see past the synths i agree i mean yeah. like there's a ton of reggae music that has got really cheesy synth, synths in it right a ton. All, all that stuff in the 80s was pretty bad yeah yeah uh the next track is i love king Ja," which is a I wrote it down as like a jolty, kind of jilted little number repeating. I love King Ja, I love Rastafari, and Rasta feel good, Rasta love God.
1: Yeah, it's more so, of like but, a Rastafarian chant, chant, which you'll hear on a lot of reggae records too.
0: Yeah, it's totally a chant, it's like a mantra. Um, but it's about a minute long, and then it kind of gets into the next real track, I guess, Now You Say, which is where you've got that go-go beat sound for sure. Yeah, Kenny said this one was influenced by outrage. Oh yeah, 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 for this, sure.
1: This I like this track. You got HR talking about some heavy social justice issues, and and Babylon system. Uh, oh, Kenny Dredd and Earl are really locked in. It's this is more funk than reggae, um, and even HR is saying stuff like, "Keep on going, keep the groove going." This the one that' gonna tear tear out the dance hall. We gonna take down the Washington D.C. with this one. Kind of James
0: Browny, hey? Yeah, but it's good. I like this song. Yeah. Then another short little ditty, "Love Ain't Crazy," at uh, almost two minutes, with synths and some echo vocals. Oh, and don't forget the shredding, Ryan. Yeah, there's more shredding for sure. <laughs> That's that was a highlight for me in the interview. You're like, you're like, Kenny, David Byer, that guy can shred. And then Kenny's like, oh, oh God, Jesus Christ, he can shred. You guys were both. Well, it's true, man. You guys were trying to out shred each other there. It was great. Next song is No Return, which is another, you know, kind of real song here. It kind of has like an '80s power ballad sound to it, though. That's what I
1: wrote—an '80s rock vibe. Uh, yeah, this is um, the one I think is maybe a standout for Kenny. He calls it "Road of No Return" in the interview, a number of oh. times,
0: which it does say in the in the chorus. So interesting. Yeah. Um, then an, another little interlude for "Don't Break," kind of a chaotic. Um, rambly breakdown there, kind of it comes and goes quickly, but then it kicks into a highlight for me, life after death.
1: Yeah, that song you just uh, mentioned, "Don't Break," that's the start aside too already. By the way, the Omega oh. side. Omega, so there we go. Not to be confused with the Omega Sessions. <laughs>
0: right, <laughs> that's Bad Brains' record. Yeah. On Victory, I think. I think Victory put that out. Yeah, I think you're right.
1: Yeah, this song's killer. I just wrote yeah. yes. No surprise, I like this one. It's Dr. No style ripping, HR doing his thing, real drums. Uh, take off the synths and punch up the production, and it could be a bad brain song. Uh, HR even does some rapping here, and he's pretty good at it. <laughs> Ryan's holding up his notes right now, and they say HR at his best, shredding.
0: Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> See, we think alike. Yeah. Now and then, yeah, amazing rocker. Um, HR at his best for sure. There's some shredding and a rap section too. Yeah. Which totally fits. Yeah, and
1: it, it's uh, I actually for the first time, maybe I think hearing HR sing, I heard a Joey Ramone influence on his vocals. Bad Brains are named after a, Ram- a Ramone song, so.
2: Yeah. You know yeah, what yeah.
1: track I was thinking of every time I heard this. Uh, a Bad Brain song off the God of Love album called The Justice Keepers. Oh, yeah. It reminds me of that song.
0: For sure. And this this song, Life After Death, this is where I can hear some living color, maybe even some of the more rock and fishbone, stuff like that, like the less ska fishbone, definitely some tendrils to this type of vibe for me anyways. The next song is Conquering Judah. Which is the most reggae sounding song on the record. Yeah, there's it's got a dub it's kind of a dub track
1: with some Rasta preaching over top.
0: And is this this is Braxton on vocals?
1: Yeah, this is the guy that Kenny didn't know who he was. Which is right. I'm assuming he was a dreadhouse guy. He definitely knows his Rastafarian theology.
0: No doubt. Um next then is another highlight for me actually. Ja, like that, which is a, a great tune. The synths are pretty overwhelming, but again, after repeated listens, an amazing reggae track. HR's vocals are insane on here. Like, he's got some great lyrics too. Only liz- lizards shed their skin, make my bitter turn sweet. Great lyrics. Yeah, I
1: wrote Not Sure About the Keys with the Pitch Modulator.
0: It kind of dates yeah. the production, really dates it, but it's a cool reggae jam. It's a good one. Then we go to uh, Viva Azania, which is a great little, uh, more of kind of a rock track, but it it has like, it starts off as a funky number, then switches to more rock, and then it returns back to this funky section.
1: Yeah, it's kind of all over the place. Uh, Azania is the name that's been applied to various parts of southeastern tropical Africa. So I'm assuming it's like, it's not something I've heard in reggae before. Like, but I'm, I'm assuming it's some sort of Marcus Garvey back to Africa.
0: Yeah. I I kind of looked it up on the Google machine too. And it, I pro I think I probably found the same thing to you. It says it's a toponym referred to a port referring to a portion of Southeast Africa, the Southeast Africa coast extending from Kenya to as far South as Tanzania. And, uh, I I'm only guessing after that. Then we get to the last track, Acting So Bad, just over five minutes. kind of <laughs> starts with a flourish, and then a mellow guitar and synth section with some slow vocals. It's uh, probably not one of my favorite tracks on the record. I like I, I actually found Side 2 to be way more enjoyable for me, and this last track is probably one of my least favorite on Side 2. Yeah, I wrote Acting So Bad is Just So Bad. It's all.
1: <laughs> it's almost a lounge track, complete with extended piano solo, and it yeah. sounds like a drum machine on this one. Pretty, yeah. su- pretty sure it is.
0: We should mention a couple of the things. Uh, some of this came up in the interview. Drawings by Andre Kastrucci, Kastrucci. Mm-hmm. Um, graphic design by Nadia Cohen. The uh, the front of the cover has got that line of Judah, which was on the Ethiopian flag from uh, the 40s to the 70s-ish. That is and, on every reggae album. Yeah, it remains very popular for Rastas to this day um, and, espe- and those loyal to Haile Selassie. The back cover says, God is love, love conquers all, everyone will fall. And then the drawings on the back, I mean, I don't know. The one on the left, it looks like it's HR and maybe the one on the right is Al Judah Walker. I don't know. Hmm hard to tell i mean i was trying to think who in the band kind of looks like that but i don't know the the videos and photos from back then it's hard to tell my guess is al though because i'm thinking that since hr and al were co frontmen of zion train it makes sense for them to maybe be in the same picture like that together that's my best guess maybe
1: I found a cool thing about this guy, James Riley, a.k.a. Mr. Jimmy Jam. So he worked at Olive Tree Records as a graphic designer and became a close friend of HR's while living at the Dread House. He and HR had a well-documented falling out, which went a step further when Jimmy interviewed HR for uh, the WDC period in 1985. Um, They had a falling out over Jimmy's sexuality. HR made some pretty gross, uh, homophobic and misogynistic comments in that interview, which I won't repeat. Jimmy was also a member of the band Revelation with Kenny Dredd, Skeeter Thompson from Scream and Greg Miller, uh, who was the drummer in No Trend. And he has a website called MrJimmyJam.com, which is a total treasure trove of artwork, articles, photos, gig posters, which he designed Uh, from the Olive Tree bands and much of the stuff Kenny and I discuss in the interview, a lot of those bands, and Jimmy designed the HR logo. Oh, no way. Yeah. And while we're we're on the topic of uh, some of these bands, everyone should totally check out Kenny's band, The Immigrants. I found a cool write-up because there's really nothing about them online that I could find, but uh, KennyDread.com is Kenny's website. There's a Cool little write-up on The Immigrants, like a little bio. Uh, you can hear the tracks on there. They're also on Spotify. Uh, it's never been released on CD or vinyl, uh, but it's really good. And there's a song on there called Power Time, I think he mentions in the interview, is a, a track he wrote about his time living in the Dread House in D.C.
0: Yep. Yeah, he definitely mentioned that. Yeah,
1: it's definitely worth checking out. I really liked it. Cool. Yeah. Well, what do you think?
0: Is it time for the ballot result? It's time. Ballot result. All right. Where are we going with this one, Brent? I've got I've got two favorites for sure.
1: Your favorites are Jaw Like That and Life After Death, right? Correct. Yeah. Mine are uh, Now You Say and Life After Death. So I think we got a we've got a winner.
0: Life After Death. Yeah, man. I kind of was thinking. Ah, you know, maybe we should have something that's got more of a reggae vibe, but that's 100% the best track on the record, and, you know, whatever. We'll get to more reggae-focused human rights records eventually, and this is the best track, and I want my ballot result comp tape to be killer. Oh, it's killer. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know, because I get to pick... Around 25% of the tracks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ryan, what's next week?
0: Yeah, well, you mentioned it earlier, and uh, this is going to be a wild one. It's SST 118, our first Henry Kaiser record, Devil in the Drain. We had some Henry on the show before, um, at least on the no-age comp, and uh, really interested in getting into this. Uh, The dude is hugely influential and prolific and we've got a special guest brand it's none other henry kaiser's on the podcast next week wicked
1: hey everyone thanks for listening you can find us on facebook instagram twitter tumblr all at mojack pod we post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show our blog is mojackpod.com please check it out for some exclusive content